This is Science Moab, a radio show exploring the science and learning about the scientists from the Colorado Plateau. I'm Diego, and on today's show, we'll talk about the incredible network and connections of the desert and forest ecosystems through their associated mycorrhizae, or the association between roots and the fungi in the earth. It's a good show, recorded for you from Moab, Utah. Stay tuned. Studying the symbioses between plants and their associated mycorrhizae has been one of my favorite uh, possible things to study, in part because it, it almost starts to feel more social than strictly ecological. There's mm-hmm. almost like economic rules at play, and it, it sort of brings out this beauty in the biological world that's almost human, or perhaps it's the inverse. It, it actually makes the human world feel a little more ecological if, if we choose to examine it in that light. Today on Science Moab, we're speaking with Dr. Michael Remke, a researcher and lecturer at Fort Lewis College in Durango, Colorado. There, his current research is focused on active forest management to promote ecological, social, and economic well-being of the communities we interact with daily. He does this by identifying the connections native plant communities have with their mycorrhizae and extrapolating that information out to reforesting programs, rebuilding and replanting after high-intensity disturbance events, and utilizing next-generation sequencing to predict the genetic makeup of soils already long gone. We begin our interview with Dr. Remke explaining how he became interested in this focus of study. Much of my work is focused on community ecology from various realms of thinking strictly about plants. And I've had a profound interest for alpine plant community ecology since I became a scientist. But a lot of my more recent work has focused on the plant-soil microbiome interactions and particularly in regard to how plants and soil microbes are interacting in a changing world. Uh, what, what kind of led me into this rabbit hole is this idea that um, plants and mycorrhizae, which are fungi that live inside of plant roots, are often taught as a textbook mutualism, uh, the idea that both groups benefit by having a symbiotic relationship. But when you start to examine the relationship across environmental gradients, you start to see that it's just simply not always mutualistic. There's opportunities for the symbiosis to actually turn into a parasitic relationship. That feels like a wonderful breaking down of the boxes that we like to build and categorize things in and accepting that most everything operates on a spectrum and better understanding the spectrum rather than the extreme ends of the spectrum gives us so much light into the complexity of ecosystems. Let's talk about connections between plants and their mycorrhizae. Where does this come from? A lot of my work has been really focused on this idea that plants and their associated mycorrhizal fungi are co-adapted to one another, meaning that uh, we can imagine a plant that's locally adapted to a given abiotic environment or climatic environment, but also 
we could imagine plants being adapted to their biotic environment or their microbes or their microbiome, if you will. Mm -hmm. And so I've been particularly interested in testing the idea of does uh, a plant and its co-adapted uh, mycorrhizal fungi provide the same benefit to each other as a plant living in symbioses with a novel suite of uh, soil organisms. In other words, if we disrupt that co-adaptated lifestyle, how does the plant then perform when trying to make new friends? And I like to keep turning the knobs on things and further that question into what happens when we force plants to live with new friends in new climatic environments? Do they receive benefit from experiencing their co-adapted co symbiotic friends, or do they actually receive more benefit from trying to make friends with the biota that have lived in the new environment in which plants are trying to live? So speaking to particular plant species, let's, let's delve into that. So we decided to hone in on very um, important and widespread focal species and blue grandma or Budalua gracilis. And so we decided to start honing in on some of these grasses that were important for livestock grazing and also supported the grazing of na native ungulates. And blue grandma just felt like a really compelling choice because it's widespread across the entire Colorado Plateau. It's pretty abundant, uh, particularly in some localities, it's one of the most abundant grasses. And it's very highly mycorrhizal. It's a C4 grass. And by that, I'm referring to its photosynthetic pathway, which allows it to more efficiently fix carbon. And that's important because mycorrhizae are demanding carbon from plants. And so having a C4 grass as a study organism felt like, oh, right, this is one that is definitely going to have a, a strong mycorrhizal response. And then ponderosa pine also became a study organism. My PhD advisor, Matt Bowker, and I felt that a tree would be an important study organism in part because there's a different type of mycorrhizal fungus um, in trees. Some tree species associate with ectomycorrhizal fungi, whereas those grasses associate with what we call our buscular mycorrhizal fungi. But also, obviously, ponderosa pine is, is so widespread uh, across the Colorado Plateau in the higher elevation reaches, like you said, in the LaSalle's near Moab, but uh, also, you know, northern Arizona has very contiguous ponderosa pine forests on the southern end of the Colorado Plateau. And we know that land managers have been struggling to plant ponderosa pine following disturbances like high severity wildfire. And we wanted to explore if mycorrhizal inoculation would be an enhancement to any artificial planting of ponderosa pine. So it, it also felt like a study system that would provide some utility to society. Mm -hmm. Could you talk to the utility people have found in revegetating areas, keeping in mind this mycorrhizal uh, relationship? Yeah, I think that this topic is one that um, Moabites and, and residents of the Colorado Plateau are really familiar with. 
we, we've seen lots of disturbance on the Colorado Plateau from increased grazing, uh, drought stress in our plant communities, and the result has generally been a trend towards more bare soil that's very susceptible to wind erosion. All of those sandstones just weather into sand. Sand is very susceptible to wind erosion. And I think we've, we've generally seen an increase in frequency in some of those dust storms, which can be a public health issue. They can cause driving hazards. And also they uh, get deposited on mountain snowpack and accelerate snowmelt. And that can have changes for the amount of water that's in the Colorado River Basin. Mm -hmm. And there is dire need to start restoring some of these landscapes that have degraded. And one focus is on restoring biological soil crust, which is great and really important. And another important interest is learning how to better restore some of these plant communities so that we can have both biological soil crust cover and some nice vegetative plant cover that helps stabilize soil, prevents some of that erosion, and provides forage for our native ungulates as well as domestic cattle. So, you know, I, I think a few things there that are really important in the revegetation perspective is asking ourselves, why do we need to revegetate a site? And if soil disturbance that could have altered native mycorrhizal communities is part of why we need to revegetate a site, say for example, high severity fire, then we have compelling reasons to believe that we could actually increase the drought resistance of ponderosa pine seedlings that are planted by also inoculating them with native mycorrhizal communities understanding when and where we can enhance restoration success with soil organisms is a really important uh, perspective on some of these revegetation strategies. And certainly in the past, we have not been using soil biota as a restoration tool. We just plant plants to grow plants. So I think this adds, adds a little bit of the below ground perspective. So a number of questions from that. Uh, can I start with how do we measure whether these mycorrhizal communities remain intact after some sort of event, um, whether that be severe fire or whatnot? And I would also love to talk about the types of events that leave these communities intact versus those that do not. What's the time frame that we're working with for them to remain intact? Yeah, great, great questions. Uh, so I, I think that how we measure microbial communities is a really important one. Traditionally, uh, we haven't had the tools to measure microbial communities until relatively recently. And, and now those tools are becoming cheaper. And what we're talking about using is next generation sequencing. So this is an advanced uh, DNA extraction procedure followed by amplifying multiple genes, of multiple organisms, within a single sample so that we can understand a microbial community. For fire, uh, the first and foremost thing to consider is how hot or what was the intensity of the fire as well as what was the severity of the fire. So some great work from Julie Korb showed us pretty early on by using slash piles as a study system to simulate fire that where 
the fire burned at low intensity on the edge of the slash pile, there was almost no change to the soil microbial communities, even at the soil surface. But as you move to the center of the slash pile and the intensity got hotter and hotter, then we start to see significant loss or sterilization of the soil, even up to like 20 to 30 centimeters in depth. Mm. And similarly, some of the work that I've been doing on the 416 fire in Southwest Colorado has shown that at depth of 30 centimeters in low severity or moderate severity fire, microbial communities are totally unaffected by fire. They're identical to an adjacent unburned soil. Mm. But when you get to high severity fire, 30 centimeters of depth starts to see some alteration of soil microbial communities. Of course, in the lower severity fire environments, there's some alteration at the surface, but in general, the soil communities stay intact. And what we're starting to learn now is that uh, the recolonization of soil microbes following an event like fire, A, it can take a really long time, but then the other thing that we're starting to show is that recolonization does occur and it generally occurs from at depth upward. So soil depths of like 50 centimeters are starting to contribute to the recovery of soil depths at 30 cement centimeters in high severity fire. And how long it takes to re-establish a community that was there prior, we just don't know. It, it might be some reality that it never happens uh, if the plant community is forever altered. And that's where some of these like top-down versus bottom-up controls are really interesting. Are the plants creating the microbial communities or the microbial communities creating the plant communities right. or are both a relevant thought? This seems like a mycorrhizal chicken and egg scenario. I'm curious, could you speak to soil microbial communities within the historical fire context, um, especially considering the recent years of massive wildfire seasons that we've had um, and the past several decades, actually, of, of this pattern? I mean, I would speculate that historically speaking, when we were seeing low severity, high frequency disturbances, because the plant populations stayed relatively intact and soil disturbance was isolated to small areas where there was pockets of more intense fire activity rather than like large landscapes turning to moon dust in a single fire, mm -hmm. that microbial communities were a lot more stable historically. But I do know Suzanne Samard has demonstrated that, that uh, high severity logging, like clear cuts in British Columbia, completely alter the microbial community. Whereas logging that preserves old large trees allows the microbial community to stay pretty much intact as it was prior to logging. And take out logging, replace it with fire, I imagine that the scenario would be almost identical. A fire that kills large old trees is probably also going to have pretty significant alterations to the microbial community whereas the most fire resistant trees happen to be the largest oldest trees if they survive then i would speculate 
that the microbial community would be regulated through the survival of those trees and thus stay uh, a lot more stable relative to some of these high severity disturbance events we're seeing today. It makes it especially scary, right? Considering the fire seasons we've been experiencing of late in 2020, 10 million acres of land burnt, human instigated or not. And if you're traveling around the West, there's some serious fire avoidance during during wildfire season that needs to happen. Things have been the way that we perceived them to be for a while. And, and now we're seeing rapid changes on the landscape. I mean, the, some of the river systems that are historically old growth wet forests on the west side of the Cascades in Oregon have burned. And they probably haven't experienced disturbance like this for well over a thousand years, right? Mm -hmm. And so whether or not that disturbance is precedent or unprecedented, the reality is it's a very dramatic change for us to process of like, wait, but this forest has been here for over a thousand years, mostly intact. That's that's a game changer to see that. And it's it's definitely hard to reckon with. And I mean, I, like you, I went on a road trip recently and the amount of burnt landscape that we drove through was so impressive and terrifying to to think about but also kind of exciting of like well if it's not going to be what it was what what will it become so thinking positively here let's leave our conversation off on land management and how your research can aid in not only revegetation um, but preventative steps that we can be taking to mitigate the effects of growing wildfire season on microbial communities uh, that support so many fragile ecosystems. Where we can, where we can make a difference is in knowing that intact ecosystems are really important. So, for that means a few things for management and mitigation of fires. And I think the classic forest restoration perspective uh, is really important to remember: removing small trees but preserving large, older trees on the landscape can help reduce fire risk while also help support and maintain the intact ecosystem that does exist. And an important piece of that is maintaining that landscape by letting fire have its natural role as much as it can and allowing those ecosystems to really experience that frequent fire return interval seems really important. And then I think the other piece is it, it certainly feels like almost everywhere you go, we have had a significant hand in altering ecosystems besides the passive letting fire uh, become more intense through climate change. And I think one thing that my research really enlightens me to is ecosystems are really complex and anywhere where that intact ecosystem does exist is an opportunity to preserve it rather than say conserve it and and make sure that that ecosystem can continue to exist in its state that it's in right now and then i think the third thing is if we feel that we want something we can use what we know about ecosystems to manifest it with some degree of intentionality so if we see a high severity fire and then we say we want ponderosa pine back we need to think about 
the trees for the forest and the forest for the trees and imagine that wildlife as well as soil microbes are part of that forest. And if we want to set the intentions to restore forest, we have to set the intentions to restore ecosystems. And that means having a perspective on soil biota and that might help us better achieve our goals and allow us to set those intentions with a perspective that can help us achieve what we're trying to achieve on the landscape. Thank you so much, Dr. Remke, for your time. To listen to this interview with Dr. Remke again, or any of our past shows, visit kzmu.org, iTunes, or Stitcher. Theme music is by Jeremy Spaulding, and funding is provided by the BYU Charles Red Center for Western Studies. The show is produced by Christina Young, Peggy Hodgkins, and KZMU.